0: Alright, good morning Mercy House. Welcome. I'm Pastor Tommy, glad that you guys are joining us here this morning. We're going to be continuing on in Nehemiah chapter 3. As you've heard uh, Alden read through it, Alden, thank you for getting through all of those hard names. Um, I encourage you guys to keep it open as we uh, work through this chapter together. So, last week we got through chapter 3 where Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. And after a four months journey all the way from his home in Persia... When he gets to Jerusalem, he takes a few days to just rest before he starts digging into the rebuilding of the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And before he could even get to the actual task of clearing rubble and repairing walls and setting doors and bolts and bars, there were some preparations that he had to do. And Nehemiah really leans into his calling in life. Essentially as what we would see as a modern day civil engineer. And he meticulously counts the cost of the project by taking time to assess the damage all around the city. So he spends all night riding around the city, seeing what needs to be done. And then we see that because this task is not something that he can finish by himself, he enlists other Israelites and invites them into the good work of the rebuilding. And if you took nothing else away from last week, I think one of the main points is that each of us as Christians have been called into Uh, living out our lives as Christians. We're invited to live out our calling. And this has some spiritual implications for sure. That what it means to live out our calling is to strive to mature as Christians, to grow more like Christ, to respond to the Great Commission, to go and to make disciples. But there are even more implications as it relates to our professions and our vocations. That the work that we're doing, whether that's as a student, as an engineer, as a doctor, as a parent even in some of the roles that we're called to as daughters and sons, as husbands and wives, as neighbors, even as a member of the church, these are not coincidental circumstances that we find ourselves in as we wait for something that's greater or more significant. We are not on the way to our calling. We are actually living out our calling right here and right now. Like this is it for many of you, for all of you. That the friendships that you have, the relationships that you have, those are the friendships and relationships that the Lord has called you to invest in and pour yourselves out into. The tasks that God has given you to accomplish. These are tasks and, and roles and jobs that God is calling you to do with all of your might. That is your calling. And Nehemiah was someone who embraced his calling. And it's an absolutely beautiful calling of what we see of being epic proportions But if we can be honest for a second, I think practically speaking, it's not that robust of a calling. He's called to rebuild a wall. But the significance of it is laid out for us as being a part of the Bible. It's a book of the Bible that narrates the story of the rebuilding of a wall. And God shows us that it was about way more than just moving some rocks and installing some doors. And I imagine one of the things that we can take away from this is that the many Seemingly menial tasks that we're called to each of us on a daily basis, whether that's the mundane work of mowing the grass or changing diapers or doing math equations or going grocery shopping or sweeping floors and cooking food, that though they might seem trivial, I believe that God will show us one day when we arrive in this heavenly kingdom at the end of time that it was about way more than just cutting grass or just picking up groceries or just finishing assignments. That there is actually way much more going on in our lives than just the things that we're called to do. Nehemiah understood this about rebuilding this wall. He knew that what was happening was way bigger than his work as an engineer or a construction foreman. He embraced his work and his tasks as his calling, as the work that he was actually made to do. And then he invited other people, his brothers and sisters, into that work as well. And near the end of chapter 2, you see in verse 18 there, and they said, and these are his brothers and sisters that he's invited in, in, they they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So this morning, as we go into chapter 3, what we see is what it looks like when the people of God embrace their calling and strengthen their hands. In other words, they rolled up their sleeves and they actually got to the good work. Of God. But before we go further, just pray with me that God would bless our time. Father, we just thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for every word of your word. And your word, as we hear it and read it and receive it, it is truth, God. And so I pray that you would help us this morning taste and see the goodness of your word. Help us to engage our hearts. Help us to engage our minds as we take this time to acquaint ourselves with your holy scripture, God. Give us soft hearts and sharp minds to do that. And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 3 is an exciting chapter. It really is. So one of the reasons why it's so exciting to me is that there's almost no delay from when the Israelites hear the invitation to rebuild and when they actually get going and doing it. So it's actually astounding how quickly the entire city gets organized, how willing they were to just dive into this hard work of repairing and rebuilding the 10 gates and the two and a half miles of wall. And Nehemiah chapter 3 is, one of, uh, the, is the first of many several breaks from the traditional narrative that you're going to see as you read through the book of Nehemiah. And what's given here is an account. It, it, it's a report, a precise report of the work that's being done. Now, if you're going to be honest, I think most people might skip over a portion of Scripture like this or at the very least skim read it, like scan through it real quick, kind of get the general gist of it, and then go go on back to the regular narrative. But we here at Mercy House, we believe that all Scripture has been breathed out by God. You see this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture has been breathed out by God, that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so this means we'll read and preach through every verse. And if you've been with us at Mercy House, you saw this play out last semester as we went through 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a hard book to preach all the way through every single verse. We preach expositionally. Through all passages of Scripture. Even when they're controversial or triggering. Like when we talked about sexuality and gender in 1 Corinthians. Or when the, 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 the passages are confusing or difficult to navigate. We talked about head coverings and singleness and marriage. and Some of that can be a little convoluted and difficult to unpack. And even when the passages are seemingly plain and boring. Like a list of names of families who did some work on a wall. The reason why we do this is because we believe that God is completely sovereign over what we have in front of us right now as we open up the Bible, and because God includes details like this for a reason, and that this chapter, however innocuous it might appear, is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, I want to thank Alden again for wrestling through this passage with its many difficult names, and Anna during our first service for reading through that. It honestly gets a lot harder uh, as you read on in this book. Chapter 7 is a doozy. There's a lot more names in there. But I hope this morning... What is going to happen is that you'll come to appreciate this passage of Scripture as we take the time to study it together and that you will grow in your love for God's Word and be able to sing out like the psalmist in Psalm 119 who says in verse 97, How I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. He goes on to say in verse, uh, says in verse 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So here's a quick outline of all of chapter 3. Israel gets to work building and repairing the walls and the gates. And that word repair is used throughout the entire passage. And it's important to note that it doesn't just mean to patch up or to fix or to kind of do a historical restoration of, but to actually make strong and firm and functional. It might not be what it looked like before, but it is functionally sturdy and firm. And the work itself involves building and fortifying sections of the wall. Remember, there's a lot of wall. There's two and a half miles of wall to fix. The wall itself stands 40 feet tall, which is about 10 feet taller than the highest point in this, uh, in this space right here. Uh, and it's eight feet wide. So this is not like a backyard little stone wall that you're kind of dividing up your, your plot, and your land with. This is a major defensive wall. And it also includes the rebuilding of the gates. There are ten gates in all. And these are the most fortified areas, as they would be the entrances and the exits from the city. And the walls, uh, I'm sorry, the gates themselves would utilize giant, massive wooden beams for the doors. These would come from Asaph's forest, as mentioned earlier in chapter 1, uh, with metal bolts and bars that would be holding them into place. And Nehemiah goes through and meticulously lists out A lot of people who were involved. This is not an exhaustive list, but it does give us a sense of who was involved in this project. And we'll dive more into some of the details of who's actually doing the building. But chapter 3 shows us that this massive undertaking is underway. And that everything in the city is happening all at once throughout the entire city. And it involves many, many, many hands working simultaneously. Lists of names like this are important to us as Christians because even though we don't know, we don't personally know any of these people, we should be encouraged by their faithfulness. That's what their name represents. Their names are recorded in history, in the Bible, as those who believed in God, who were faithful to him, who embraced the good work that God was calling them to do. And so when you see a name like this, I think just practically you should know that you're not alone. You're not the only one to be asked to step out in faith. These other people have. And they're being blessed and honored in doing so. I think one thing to consider just to think about is that, Lord willing, someday someone might see your name somewhere as a Christian who faithfully did whatever work you're doing right now. And the glory is not going to be yours. They won't know who you are. They won't know what you prefer, what your favorite food is, or what you do on your day off, any more than we know those things about the people on list list here in chapter 3. But our name will, rep- will represent a person whom God sustained to be faithful to the calling that God has put on our lives. It will represent a person who was transformed by the gospel and who embraced their calling. And all glory is going to be to God in that moment. But our names, Lord willing, even as a tiny little footnote in this grand story of what God is doing, will bring encouragement to someone like us, just like the names in chapter 3 ought to bring us encouragement as we read them out loud. So what I'd like to do this morning is I just want to point out some observations that we can make as you look at chapter 3. This at, at the list of names of people who worked on the walls and the gates. I have nine observations that I want to draw out. And I, I think that these can be valuable for us to understand that there's something much bigger going on here than just a construction project. So these are relatively quick observations that I'm going to work through for us. Number one, the priority of God in their work. The priority of God in their work. All this work has to start somewhere. And this is what we see in the very first verse. Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. Now, the sheep gate is significant because the sheep gate was the one that would be used to lead the sheep into the temple in order to make sacrifices to God and to worship him. And so right away, what we see as being on the hearts and the minds of Israel is is that as they're rebuilding Jerusalem, it's not just cleaning up the streets for the sake of having clean streets. The purpose of all of this work is to return to God and to worship him. And it's fitting that of the high priest, along with his fellow brother priests, were among the first to roll up their sleeves. They're not just commissioning the work to be done. It's not like an elder coming to a work day and just praying over it and then like getting in the car and leaving. Like They actually stuck around and they did the work. They're doing it themselves. I think this is an encouragement and an exhortation to professional ministers of the gospel, those who are leaders within the church and within ministry, that we don't have to be the best, we don't have to be the brightest, but we are encouraged, we ought to endeavor to be the first ones to roll up our sleeves. Once that work is done, they consecrate it. They bless it. Again, I think this points to the fact that they know that what they're doing is way more significant than just moving some brick and mortar. Israel understood that if things weren't right with God, then that's where they had to begin their work. And what a good reminder this is for us today. I think that for many of us, there might be areas in our lives that are at the very least in disrepair. Maybe they're in absolute ruin, like it was for the Israelites. And those areas will need to be addressed. That's part of the exhortation to engage in the rebuilding process that we gave a couple of weeks ago. But we must prioritize our relationship with God as the first thing that gets rebuilt or tended to if it's out of place. Not our diet and whether or not we're eating well. Not our bodies and whether or not we're exercising enough. Not our entertainment or our hobbies or even the relationships that might be in disrepair around us. If we are not walking with the Lord, then we can't do any of those things in the healthiest way. in The way that the Lord would want us to do them. And so repairing those things will not fix our relationship with the Lord. Israel took the time to prioritize God in their work. Because they understood that being able to walk in healthy relationship with God was absolutely central to every other facet of their lives. Second observation, the miraculous nature of the work. So it might be tempting to see this as a pretty incredible human feat. Being able to coordinate and motivate all of these people in this massive building project. And in some ways, it is an an incredible underdog story. They're in some ways like reversing the curse. They're snapping this really long losing streak that Israel has been having. This passage and this book is often taught as a, a leadership manual for what it looks like to lead and motivate people to projects. But let's not get carried away and give too much credit and praise and glory to Nehemiah and the people. Look at what is said at the finish line. This is in Nehemiah chapter six, verses 15 and 16. This should be on your screen. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished With the help of our God. So it is one thing for a Christian to say, wow, God really showed up here. Like, praise God. It's another if a non-Christian looks at that same situation and has a similar conviction and says, wow, your God really showed up for you right there. I think for Christians who embrace God's calling on our lives... There is an awareness of God's sovereign hand in our lives and the miraculous working of God's spirit through us to accomplish the things that the Lord is calling us to accomplish. But here's the thing, that that awareness is not just for the Christian, but it's also an awareness that the world is privy to as well as they look in on the work that's being done in our lives. If we are living by faith in a way that requires God to show up or else we're going to fail, then I think the world around us, as they're looking in, they're also going to have to see God showing up if we're living our lives in that type of way. Third observation. The diversity of the people who are working. So in chapter 3, the work is not just outsourced to some construction company to take care of. What we see are priests in verses 1 and 28, you see goldsmiths in verses 8. 31 and 32, you see perfumers in verse 8, you see merchants in verse 32, you see district rulers and governors in verses 9, 12, 14 through 19, they're all doing the work. You see people who are wealthy, and you see people who are, doing, who, who are poor doing the work. You see men, and you see women doing the work. This is God's vision for his kingdom, and what it means to participate in the building of God's kingdom. The work of ministry is not for a select few with special and specific gifts, but the invitation is to everyone to strengthen their hands, to roll up their sleeves, and to do the work of building. What you see in chapter 3 is a beautiful glimpse and a picture of God's people, but it's even further realized here and today. So the Israelites were diverse in their experiences, in their backgrounds, in their professions. But we at Mercy House today have people who are literally from all around the world representing dozens of different cultures and professions and passions and opinions. We are today a further fulfillment of God's vision for his kingdom, which he was beginning to rebuild in the time of Nehemiah. And that should bring great encouragement to us as we sit here and look around. Fourth observation, humility enables good work. Humility enables good work. Being different is beautiful, but sometimes it makes it hard to work with one another. What you see in these verses is a humility that enables good work. The work was not beneath anyone and the work was worth learning how to do. What I mean by that is what does a perfumer or a priest know about building a wall? Probably not a lot, I imagine. But what they did was they humbled themselves to the task. They took the time to learn how to do it, and then they did it. I think today in the church, in our church, people might hear an invitation to serve or to help out in a certain way, and they might think, like, I'm not gifted in that. That's not really my jam. Like, we have asked people to come to a work day, and a lot of people say, well, I'm not very handy or they, they, they say, like, I don't really, you know, paint very well. I don't really know electrical stuff. There might be an invitation to help with AV. And we've heard people say, like, I'm not an audiophile. Like, I don't have an ear for it. I don't have any experience. I'm not called to do that. But that's not necessarily how God's people respond here. When Nehemiah asks them to help build. Look, building wasn't their profession. It wasn't their gifting. But... They were called when Nehemiah called them and invited them to serve. So I think one thing to consider is maybe you're called to do something simply when someone asks you, Hey, can you help with this? Humility enables good work. And today, there's going to be an opportunity for you to respond in some areas of need at Mercy House. And you're going to see some sign-ups in the back of areas where we're encouraging, we're inviting, we're asking you to humble yourself and to serve. To serve with our kids in Mercy House Kids, with our AV team, to help greet and usher, to be a part of the building team, to help be good stewards of this space. We're also inviting you to become a member of the church, to be a member uh, of this community as well. And you'll hear more about that in the announcements at the end of service. The other side to this, the fifth observation, is that pride prevents good work. Pride prevents good work. Not everyone who was invited into doing the work responded well. So look at verses 3 through 5. The sons of Hesena built the fish gate. They laid its beans and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakas, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekuites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. So you got all these people humbling themselves for good work, one after another, down the line, the sons of Hesanah, Mermah, Meshulam, you've got Zadok, the Tekoites, but then the Tekoan nobles would not stoop to serve their word. The wording there literally is that they would not lower their shoulders to the work, or they would not bend their necks down to engage with the work. This phrase you see often in Scripture, God describes Israel as being a stiff-necked people. This is an agricultural term that would refer to an ox that that would be stubborn or uncontrollable. For whatever reason, the Tekoan nobles, they didn't roll up their sleeves. They didn't strengthen their hands to join the work, even when their people did. And you'll see in a little bit that their people went above and beyond. Pride prevents good work. And here, it's not just any work. They wouldn't stoop to serve their Lord by doing the work that they were called into doing. As I meditated on this, and you see this kind of stick out, uh, this verse stick out as you're reading through it, and I just thought, like, I really, by the grace of God, like, Lord, let this not be my legacy. Let this not be the legacy for my family to be called out for not being willing to serve the Lord. And I wouldn't want this for you either. The, the Bible is a completed work. So you, you're not going to be written, like, written into the Bible as being called out for someone who didn't do the work that God was calling them to do. But the story of what God is doing in us is continuing to be written right now. And so I think it could be important for us to ask ourselves, where might we be stiff-necked? Where might we, as, God's, as God is calling us to live out our calling, to serve and to love others and to give and to sacrifice and to pour ourselves out, to share the gospel, to make disciples, are there places where we're being stubborn or uncontrollable, too prideful to lower our shoulders to the work? I think it's a question that we all need to ask ourselves because pride prevents the good work that God is calling us to do. Observation number six. You see an emphasis on the collective good. There are many people who repaired the sections of the walls that were right next to their homes. And so this obviously would have a very personal benefit, right? It, it also would motivate them to do good work since they're going out every single day and looking at the wall that they've worked on. But not everyone who came and served and worked on the walls actually lived within the walls of Jerusalem. People came from all over the place. You have volunteers from Jericho in verse 2. You've got the people from Tekoa in verse 5. Gibeon in verse 7. Mizpah in seven fifteen and 19. you got people from Zanoah in verse 13. You have people from beth Hakaram in verse 14. You have people from Beth-Zer in verse 16. You have people from Kayla in verse 17 and 18. These are people who would not directly benefit from any of the work, the sacrificial work that they were were lowering their shoulder to take on. But they did it anyway because they were willing to serve and to sacrifice for the collective good of Israel. They understood that it wasn't just about any single person. It wasn't about what they would get out of it, but it was about the whole community, for us, this lays out the groundwork for how we understand the church as having many different parts, but as a part of one body. Not just a straggling toe over here worrying about itself, not just an elbow out to figure out life for itself, but, but like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, this should be on your screen, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so our calling is not to just look out for ourselves or our own families, but to selflessly serve one another for the collective good of God's people, the body, the church. On permission number seven. What you see is unity and solidarity found in their work. Did you read through the whole passage, one of the common phrases is next to them, and next to them, and next to him, and next to them, and next to them, and next to them, and next to them. And the Israelites were shoulder to shoulder in their work. You could look right next door, literally, and see your neighbors lowering their shoulders to the work. Like, how encouraging would that be? I know for me, if I have like a big task and I have to do it by myself, I'll try to get it done. But if I have a lot of people coming to help, I mean, I'm just so much more encouraged. It becomes a completely different experience than just work that I have to do myself. And what a great level of accountability as well. As you look out and you see, okay, Bob's working and Sandy's working. Where's Greg? I haven't seen Greg around. Oh, maybe he's taking the day off. There's an encouragement for all of us to, to participate and to be together in this work. That's one of the things that you see in this chapter is that the people are working together to have one purpose. And that purpose you see earlier in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And it's to remove the reproach of the nations. The, the shame that's been on them for not worshiping God. And then also to restore a right relationship with God. That's central to what they're working on together. And what we see is a good work that is centered around the mission of God. It brings about unity. It brings about solidarity. It brings about fellowship in some miraculous ways. The eighth observation for you is the enthusiasm that's in some of their work. So look, not all people have the same size plate. So on our work days, I bring my daughter Chloe um, and I can get a solid 15 minutes of work out of her, out of the three that we spend here. And then she goes and she plays and runs around, and, um, and that's pretty good for her. She's six years old, right? Uh, an example on the other end of the spectrum would be Kirill Zinchenko. So I don't know if you know him, but he's there. He comes early. He works all day. He stays late, and then a random night of the week, I'll see him here working this past week. He was there at 8 p.m. on Wednesday night fixing the pair of steps. He's like, oh, yeah, some of these are loose, so I just cut some boards and I'm replacing them. What you see is that same distinction in this chapter. You see someone like Merimoth, who completed his section of the wall in verse 4, but then he actually goes on to repair another section. So he finishes work. He's like, hey, is there anything else I can do? And they're like, yeah, there, you can go down that way. And he's like, all right. So he goes down and works on a second portion of the wall. Meshalem is someone who does the same thing. In verse 4, he completes his section. And then verse 31, it says that he went on and did a whole other section. What's really surprising, what I love, is that the Tekoans, the, the one whom the the nobles would not stoop to do the work, they're also responsible for doing a double portion. So they're like, oh, our elders won't do it? Well, let's just do more. They were, for whatever reason, motivated, enthusiastic to do their work and then keep on going. These are people who didn't ask, hey, what's the bare minimum here? And then just check out on the dot. They were enthusiastic about the work that God called them to do because they regarded it a privilege to serve God and to serve the collective good of their people. And what they knew, I'm pretty sure, is that any ounce of effort that they put out meant one less ounce of effort for one of their brothers and their sisters. I exhort you to think this way, to think about each other this way, when there are places to serve and to love, to pour yourself out enthusiastically for the sake of of one another, And lastly, this is my ninth observation, the responsibility to God and to each other. Responsibility to God and to each other that we see in these verses. A defensive wall is only as strong as its weakest point. And everyone was expected to do their job. Their very lives depended on it. So remember, this is not a decorative wall. This is not a faux wall that they're putting up in their backyard to help distinguish like, their neighbors from their own plot of land. These walls had the practical purpose of defending the lives of you and your family and your neighbors. So during this time, remember, there's no police force. What stood between you and people who would want to hurt you or kill you or steal your stuff was this stone wall. And so the people of God understood the importance of their work, both the spiritual aspect for sure. Like they were aiming toward restored relationship with God with this building. But they also understood that there was a practical implication to their work as well, which was in the defending of the welfare of their brothers and sisters next to them. There's a Bible scholar's name is T.J. Betts. And this is a quote by him on just the responsibility of this important work and what it means for us today in the church. He says, one of the greatest reasons the church suffers today is that there are those refusing to take responsibility for what God has called them to do. As a result, the church fails in its mission of making disciples and brings reproach on itself. It, too, is then vulnerable to attack. A church's greatness is not measured by its size. It is measured by the percentage of people taking responsibility for what Christ has called them to do in his service. Greatness in the kingdom is marked by service. May we be a church that is not just great in numbers, but more importantly, filled with people who are taking responsibility for what Christ has called us to do. So to wrap this all up, it's clear to us what the good work that Nehemiah and the Israelites were called to. They they were called to the practical task of rebuilding the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And I think perhaps the most important question that we ought to be asking ourselves is, what is the good work of the Christian today? We don't necessarily have any giant walls to build around our town. And I don't mean, as I talk about work... What is the work that we need to do in order to be a Christian or in order to be saved? But what is the work that we are now called to once we become Christians who have been saved? This is a really important distinction. And Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. This should be on your screens as well. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For... We are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand beforehand, that we should walk in them. So the Christian, this is what Paul is saying, is saved by grace through faith in Jesus. It's not something we work for, it's not something that we earn, it is a gift from God. Paul makes it explicitly clear in verse 9, salvation is not a result of works. But, that does not mean that we have no relationship to work at all. Because verse 10 there says that we were created for good works, which God has prepared for us to do. Which he's calling us to, that we ought to walk in them. And so, to understand this good work, I think here are a few verses that might be helpful. In Titus chapter 1, uh, Paul is writing to Titus regarding people who are in the church but they are not Christians... He says in verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. In other words, they're saying that they they are Christians, that they know God, but based on how they act and what they do, it does not appear that that is true. He goes on to say, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And so the good work, which God calls us to, is distinctly Christian. And it is unique from the work of a non-Christian. So the, this good work is not merely uh, morally good work. There are plenty of non-Christians uh, by, who, by the grace of God, can do really good, moral, morally good things. But that's not what the Bible is talking about here. What Paul writes to Titus is that those who are disobedient toward God, who do not follow God, they're unfit for the good work which God calls those who do follow him to do. This good work is something that we as Christians are encouraged over and over again to do in Scripture. Second, Th- uh, Second Thessalonians 3 verse 13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Galatians 6 verses 9 through 10, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Another place in Colossians chapter 3, this is one of my favorite verses, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So those are some encouragements to do good and to do good work. But that still doesn't answer the question, though, what is this good work practically that we are called to as Christians? I think one of the best places that this is answered, at least succinctly, is in 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, where John, in his letter, helps us understand what it looks like to live out our calling as Christians. This should be on your screen. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The ultimate good work which we have been made to do is to walk in obedience to what God has commanded. To keep his word. And in case we need an example for what that looks like, we have Jesus. John says in verse 5 there that this is how we know that we are in him. In other words, this is how we know that we are Christians, how we know that we've been saved by grace, that we walk in the same way that Jesus walked. And we do this understanding that Jesus is the ultimate good worker. He, He perfectly satisfies the definition of what it means to do good work. Let me show you what I mean. So all this work that we've done to, to make these observations of how uh, the, the, the work of the Israelites and of Nehemiah on the wall. Like, it was good. The, the, these are good things about the way that they worked. But they're only good because they point to Jesus who is the true and better vision of someone embracing their calling and doing good work. So as you work through those observations again... It wasn't just that Jesus' priority was spiritual like it was for Israel. His entire mission and his purpose was dedicated to the reuniting and the redeeming of his people back to him spiritually. Jesus didn't just humble himself as a perfumer or a priest to do the lowly work of rebuilding the wall. He humbled himself as God and creator to become a human being In order to identify and sympathize with his people. And unlike the Tacoma nobles, Jesus, the heavenly noble, he did put his shoulder to the work. He lowered and bent his neck down in order to bear up the cross and to carry the weight of our sin on his shoulders. Jesus not only calls diverse people to the task of building a wall, he, he is building an entire kingdom of diverse individuals who are all invited into the building of that kingdom as well. Jesus is the ultimate example of someone who gave up their individual rights. He laid aside his individual good and sacrificed himself for the collective good of each and every one of us. Jesus enables true unity and solidarity around his mission of making disciples and rebuilding his kingdom. And Jesus embodied perfectly what it means to be responsible and have a responsibility to the Father and to us by being obedient to the Father in loving care of us. Paul sums it up really well in Philippians 2 verse 8. He says, "In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death On a cross. This is what we remember. Each time we take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread and broke it. Saying this is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper. He took the cup and said. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it. In remembrance of me. Jesus' death on the cross was Jesus' ultimate good work that enables our forgiveness and our salvation and our redemption back to our Father. The, The ultimate good work has already been done. That's what we get to celebrate when we take communion. We remember the good work which Jesus did, which has brought us from rubble onto solid ground, which has brought us from desolation and death into the eternal life with our Father. I want to exhort you this morning, in light of this fact being true for you, if you have received this, in light of that ultimate good work already being done, that you now go and do good work. And that good work means abiding in God's word and walking as Jesus walked. I want to encourage you to humble yourself and to lower your shoulder. Be willing to bend your neck down to the work that God has called you to do. Not in order for you to be saved or for you to earn forgiveness. If you're a Christian, that has already been given to you by faith but as a response to this salvation that we have received, as a response to the forgiveness that we've experienced and which God has given to us as a free gift. So I want to leave you with this last encouragement. We ought to continue in good work and not grow weary or tired in it because Jesus also is continuing his good work. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus continues to lower his shoulder to the work right alongside us. And I think one of the most incredible things about this is that he's not working on a wall. He's working on you. He's working on me. And yeah, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. But here's the truth and the reality that we see is that he will not grow weary or tired. He will not lose heart. He's not going to take his wrench and throw it out of frustration. He's not going to run out of materials. He's not going to do a shoddy job or cut corners. He won't lose patience. He will not quit. He will not walk away from his work in you. And he will not abandon you, no matter how big of a messy rubble pile you are right now. Because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, you are our Holy Father. And you are the head of this church. And God, we adore you as the great redeemer and great restorer, the great builder, the perfect worker. God, thank you for how you show us what it looks like to be humble and to lower your neck and your shoulder to work. God, we confess that our pride inhibits us sometimes from doing work that you're calling us to do. God, we confess sometimes we're afraid. Sometimes we feel like we don't have enough energy that we can't do it, God. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us and equip us for the work that you're calling us to do, God. Lord, in, the, in our lives, in our relationships with others, in our profession, and the, the work that you've called us to do with our hands, or the work that you're calling us to do with our minds, even in our relationship with you, God, help us to have a willingness to lower our shoulder to the work, God. Lord, thank you for how you show us that you sustain those who respond in this way, God. And so, God, I, I thank you so much for the people who are in this building, God. I pray that we as a church would continue to mature and to grow and that the percentage of those who take a responsibility take up their responsibility um, to follow you would increase, God, that we would be a household um, as a family and as a body that endeavors to serve you, God, um, and who's willing to do that, Lord. God, thank you for how you bless us with fellowship, how we are shoulder to shoulder in this, God. Thank you for the fact that none of us are alone in this. Lord, thank you that you ultimately will finish the work Uh, of building your church. You will finish the work in each and every one of us. Help us to have great hope uh, and be greatly encouraged by these truths, Lord, and help us to walk out of here uh, faithfully, Lord, doing the work and engaging with the work that you've called us to do. God, we love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.